Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up with Peter Moroni. He is the executive chairman of Humana Gold. We talk about M&A versus organic. We talk about investing in South American assets. We look at equities versus physical gold. And if you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation uh, with regards to their future proofing of the company, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com. We also have experts from around the world uh, commenting on a number of commodities and companies. We've got training courses on there. We also do summaries of all the interviews that we do. And we have a wonderful, thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, friendly, safe environment. And you can join them at cruxinvestor.com if you want to be free of all that judgment, trolling, and abuse you see elsewhere. Peter, how are you, sir? Uh, Matt, I'm doing really well, and I'm happy to be here speaking with you. Well, the happy Victoria Day to you, because I think you're actually on a holiday, which makes it uh, twice as good that you're here. It is indeed, but we're still under, um, I'll call it loosely confinement, we're still under quarantine here in Toronto, which means that um, whether or not it's Victoria Day or a Saturday or a Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, every day feels very much the same as the day before. Every day is Victoria Day, is that what you're saying? <laughs> well said, yes. That's right. <laughs> well, look, I'm really pleased that you've uh, joined us. Um, really wanted to un- try and understand your story and kind of get into it a little bit. So I appreciate you making the time for us. Um, and what we like to do is just get kick off for a, with a one minute overview of, of your business. And I'll pick it up from there with some questions. So I um, took the company public in 2003. And the idea in 2003 was to be a significant, what I then called a dominant intermediate sized company, just below the large cap companies in the precious metal space. And we continue with that theme today. We are a company that focuses on uh, the Americas. Uh, That's a distinction that's very important to us. We're not all over the world, but we're in North and South America. We prefer to be in jurisdictions where there is a mining tolerance. I call it a mining friendliness, but really what it is is a rules-based mining approach to mining that there are established laws and codes of conduct relating to what a mining company ought to do. So we are in Canada, Brazil, Chile, and Argentina. They certainly qualify as rules-based jurisdictions, those mining-friendly jurisdictions. And with five producing mines, we produce just over 1 million ounces of gold equivalency. And what I mean by gold equivalency is a production platform of roughly 860,000 ounces of gold and 10 million ounces of silver So on a gold equivalency basis, using that ratio of gold price to silver price, that's just over a million ounces. We also have other metals in the the portfolio. We have a copper asset. Uh, Hopefully we'll discuss a little bit of that uh, later. Mostly the focus of the company, just to conclude, is not just on the top line of production, but it's also to ensure that we maintain a vigilance on the compression of costs so that we can generate strong margins and generate strong cash flow, and in particular, free cash flow so that we can always maintain strong cash balances and use those cash balances amongst other uh, uh, things uh, to ensure that we pay a dividend to our investors and continue to increase that dividend. Brilliant, thank you. 18 years ago, you set this up with the goal of being a dominant intermediate. What had you done before that? Most people are just happy to survive. Well, I've described it recently, and I say this tongue in cheek, hopefully it will be seen as intended with a bit of humor. But uh, a, a colleague of mine who is a portfolio manager 
mentioned that I've gone from the dark side to the darker side to the darkest side. I was a practicing lawyer, uh, mostly with international transactions, very close to mining companies and extractive industries. Um, I gave up the shingle to go into investment banking several years before the formation of Yamana. And in the context of being an investment banker and running the capital markets group of a Canadian investment bank with international exposure, I came across certain assets. Uh, and rather than uh, rely on normally what an investment banker would do, I came to the conclusion that these were the sorts of assets that I could invest in and in investing in them, then forming a management and taking the company public. And ergo, as this particular person has said to me tongue in cheek, I've gone from the dark side as a lawyer to the darker side as an investment banker, to absolutely the darkest side as a mining executive and mining promoter. There you go, blimey. 18 years ago, what's, what's kind of kept you at it? Because that's, that's a long time to be involved in one company, isn't it? Well, it's been very dynamic. Uh, we've gone from a company that was producing barely 80,000 ounces per year in 2003, 2004, to a production platform, as I mentioned a few moments ago, of, on an equivalency basis over 1 million ounces. Uh, and we've gone through a portfolio uh, refresh throughout that period of time and a management refresh throughout that period of time, several succession plans, um, it, mostly to um, a, a company should evolve. And as a company goes through its normal cycle of, of growth, it should also evolve in terms of what its management construct should look like refreshment and diversification of boards of directors, and also the quality of the portfolio should continue to improve. And that's been very um, uh, exciting for me, and I've certainly enjoyed that 18-year stint in this company. So how do you position yourself? You're an executive chairman. You've got a CEO. There's um, there's a dynamic in the marketplace at the moment with regards to around ESG and so forth. And I, I, do, I do want to talk to you about that one because I think it's an interesting one. But at what point did you sort of take your hands a little bit off the leash? When did you think, actually, the, I'll let someone else sort of direct the operational component? Yeah, really good question, Matt. And, and it really was a, a decision made about three years ago, perhaps a bit over three years ago, as I was coming to the conclusion that uh, given what we had done for the refresh of our portfolio at this, it, with the portfolio that we have today, and given what we've done with the change in our board of directors, roughly 50% of our board of directors is new to the company today by comparison to four or five years ago, and some of the succession plans that we had completed, it, it looked optimal to me to say that it is my turn to go through that succession plan. It's my turn to say, give up the shingle, as I put it before, as the chief executive of the company. Our board of directors did something interesting. Interesting. They looked at companies outside of our space. They looked at directionally where the um, market was going. And the conclusion was the following. We're in an industry that needs to look at long-term and strategically what a company should do long-term. But we're also in a marketplace that certainly some market participants are looking for what is the short-term impact of one thing or another arising from our business. And so the conclusion that was reached was, uh, rather than, than go with a conventional approach of only a chief executive officer, uh, why don't we create this chairman and chief executive role, bifurcate the roles, uh, and create an executive function in the chairman, not only as a, as a board representative, but also as a, uh, as a, a management representative, effectively 
uh, one leg in the uh, board pool and the other leg in the management pool. So I have one report and that report is the chief executive of the company. Operations and all other matters report to that chief executive. My role is effectively to be a proxy of the board of directors, to be involved in the management in a capacity that looks at the long-term strategic direction of the company. And that includes everything from what we should be doing with our operations, what is the M&A goal and strategy of the company. And of course, not only looking at environment from the lens that is normally looked at, which is what are we doing locally, but also what are we doing globally? And so looking at the environmental impact of our company globally, what we should be doing in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, climate action strategies, and the like. So that's the approach that we've taken. And over the course of the last three to three and a half years, I believe it's worked remarkably well and allowed us to be positioned as a company that has been able to demonstrate that it can meet goals quarter by quarter and year by year, while at the same time also setting these loftier, longer term strategic positions and directions for the uh, for our company. See, I, I, I think that's an interesting point that we're, we're kind of winding our way to, because if I look as a family office, or even previously as institutional, looking at an organization like yours, 5 billion US market cap, um, and you're kind of, you know, you're, you're following, you know, the, the gold chart, as it were, the, high, the highs and the lows of gold over the last eight, 20, 18, 24 months. There's an expectation that you just need to do what you say. I don't almost don't care what the assets are. It's like if you say you're going to hit one million ounces gold equivalent, you need to hit one million ounces gold equivalent. The detail, the admin of it, that's your problem in a way. And, and I know that's what you, we, we'll talk about in a second, but... Are you, are you finding that's the attitude of the large institutions um, now, or family offices, or retail looking at this? That there's a there's a there's a desire for you to talk the language of ESG and, and forward looking and be green and be ethical and be the the you know the best manner possible. But at the end of the day, you still got to deliver those numbers. Which 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 is obviously tough. It's a relentless business. Mining is a relentless business. But you've also got to manage the the way you do it because if you outperform in any one year, you're kind of setting a rod for your own back in a, in a way. The targets just get higher for next next quarter and the quarter after that because the market reacts. In fact, so how, how do you manage that dynamic and, and setting of targets for yourself? Well, unquestionably, um, there is a market dynamic that looks to some of the shorter term. What happens, as I mentioned, on a quarter by quarter basis, for example, the production goals and cost goals. What is the cash flow and free cash flow that a company generates? But as I alluded to a few moments ago, we're in an industry where the setting of mine plans is something that is over several years. It could be as much as a decade or longer. And so it's very difficult to sort of set short-term objectives with also also having an eye on what are the longer-term objectives of that company. And setting short-term objectives should not be at the expense of the longer term objectives. Look, let me say it simply. A company can extract more metals from the ground on a year to year basis than a mine plan can show. But in doing that, it may not demonstrate itself for a year or a couple of years, but one can damage a mine in taking those actions. As you mentioned a few moments ago, there's a complexity to mining and particularly to underground mining. And given that complexity, one can forever lose the benefit of certain ounces the benefit of certain 
areas that could come into reserves or that are in reserves as a result, result of short-termism at the expense of long-termism. I don't believe companies in our industry do that. But what I'm trying to get at is that the best way to deliver on shorter-term objectives is to ensure that we have long-term, longer-term mine plans that are, that are efficient, that are effective, and that are of high quality. So in order to set the shorter-term objectives, one has to keep an eye on what are the longer-term objectives and ensuring that we've taken all the steps that are required to make sure that we've line, aligned ourselves properly with those longer-term objectives. But people do do that. You've got to behave a certain way as a larger company. They, some of the smaller single-asset, single-jurisdiction companies, they do do that. They do high-grading. They do try and outperform because they need to create something, a story in the market, which is short term. You're talking the language of setting much long, almost generational type projects going here. So you, what's the process you've been through in the past few years in terms of, because you, you'll pick up projects and they may not be everything that you think they were when you bought them, you know, but you'll work that out quite quickly. And is it the case of you move those on very, very quickly or you are very careful about the way you go about selecting these sort of you know, more generational type um, acquisitions that you may do? Well, we treat uh, our approach to acquisitions and the way we treat acquisitions is not different from the approach that we take on the um, observations and um, uh, analysis that needs to be undertaken to determine um, whether or not an asset goes through the development cycle. And then what we do with that asset once it becomes a mine and it's in production. The approach is very similar. Admittedly, there's a bit of a difference because when one is looking at something outside of a company, the amount of diligence that is done is often less than the diligence that's done with an asset inside a company. That should be obvious. Um, In looking at something outside of a company, uh, one has a limitation in terms of how much diligence the other company will allow you to do. But I think what's important is that the quality of diligence that's conducted, the amount that one is prepared to pay, the returns that one wants to get from an acquisition or from something inside the company, we have to set those objectives first. And once those objectives are set, I think then it becomes easier to determine, should we be pursuing something through development? Or as you can go into your question, should we be pursuing something uh, through acquisition and then through the development cycle. I think the best way to highlight these points is to look to some examples. In 2014, opportunistically, and I think it's important to be opportunistic in this industry, when an, an opportunity presents itself, see if you can take advantage of it. Opportunistically, Canadian Malarctic, which is one of our mines, uh, was put in play in 2014. A larger company than, our, than ours uh, launched an unsolicited hostile takeover bid for the company that owned it. We partnered with a company to acquire it and succeeded in acquiring it. We looked at it from the following lenses. One is, can we optimize the operation? It was already in production, but certainly not to the optimal level that it is at today. It was producing at 48,000 tons of throughput per day. We're now at more than 56,000 tons of throughput per day. Secondly is, can we improve In optimizing, can we improve its health, safety, and environmental compliance efforts? Can we take advantage of those opportunities? Thirdly is, can we um, toggle with grade and find opportunities to improve grade? Where do we see opportunities with this big open pit operation where we can improve 
uh, the grade that isn't proven and probable, we can get something a little bit better than proven and probable. And finally, we looked at it and said, while we will not pay, we might pay a little bit, but not entirely for exploration upside. Is there exploration upside? Now, the obvious view to a big open pit operation is there can't possibly be exploration upside. What you see is what you get. And that conventionally is very true. However, in 2014, there were eight drill holes into the underground below the area of the Canadian Malarctic open pit. We came to the conclusion that there was a high probability that there was a ore body there. Now, we could not have foreseen that it would be more than 14 million ounces in inventory and continuing to grow. And 14 million ounces, if I can highlight for your benefit and others, I would consider a world-class deposit, an underground mine that is world-class at 5 million ounces. We're carrying an inventory in total resources already more than 14 million ounces in three ore bodies underground. We've now delivered a development plan and have begun the process of developing that underground so that we begin full operations by 2028. And that will run all the way through to about 20, 2040, again, becoming generational. We didn't pay for that. We didn't pay for that 14 million ounces. We didn't pay for that underground opportunity we saw was there. So in looking at an acquisition, one has to look at how one can improve that acquisition, that, that, uh, if it's in development, uh, how we can develop it better. If it's in production, how we can improve that uh, production platform. And is there exploration upside? And that exploration upside is very significant uh, for our company. More recently, Matt, we acquired Wazamak. Wazamak is about 100 kilometers away from Canada Malarctic, still in northern Quebec. Wazamak is our newest project. We paid on a per ounce basis. So let's look at the inventory of resources and reserves. For every ounce of proven and probable reserves of just about 1.8 million ounces of reserves, we've paid $70 per ounce. And in terms of total resources, about $40 per ounce. That is equivalent to how much it would cost us to develop a, a deposit on our own. So in other words, going through the cycle of taking something from exploration through to development on our own, what's the cost of every new ounce that we find that gets to that point? This project was already a feasibility study. They completed a feasibility study in 2018. And so our conclusion was we're buying comparatively inexpensive ounces, ounces that are not different in price per ounce to what it would cost us to find those new ounces in a high quality jurisdiction where we believe we can increase those number of ounces over the course of time, and we can toggle that development plan so that it becomes a better mine than what is contemplated in the feasibility study. And we'll deliver the results of that now that we've completed the acquisition in the third quarter uh, of this year. That's the approach that we take to, uh, to, to possible acquisitions. Right, and which is great in a, in a positive environment. So the end of uh, 2019, most of 2020, with the exception of a couple of months. It was a great year for adding cash to the, to the balance sheet. It was a great year. Your average ace that you're showing in the presentation is about 1,080 bucks. It, it says you're looking to lower that to 1,020 or so, but you're there thereabouts. So in this, in this gold environment, you're making cash. Before that, it was a little bit tougher when, it, you know, the 1250 through to, you know, 1450 days, it's a little bit tougher, not much cash being added. You're looking at credit situations. So it's the big company problem isn't it? Which is what do you do with the cash that you've got? How do you spend it? I know you do dividends, which is great, and they're good dividends. But 
you've offloaded last year, was it, well, was it last year to Nomad, the royalty component, and you're trying to be, I guess, pure play producer, gold, gold silver, copper, molybdenum producer. But how, how, how do you manage what you do with your cash? How, what are you going to, are you, have you got debt at the moment, for instance? Is that, is that something that you want to clear the decks with? I mean, then, then what do you do? Do you just keep buying? Yes. So I, I, I'd like to challenge for a moment the cost construct, just so that everyone understands <clears throat> what happens with, with costs and those margins. And yes, admittedly, we're in an $1,800 plus gold environment. And so it's always better than being in a $1,300 plus gold environment or 1,200 or whatever the, the number is. The starting point is we, de- we develop our proven and probable reserves model based on a gold price assumption of $1,250 per ounce. So deeply discounted to the current gold price. And interestingly, we've been almost, uh, it's almost counter-cyclical, the approach that we've taken to the development of proven and probable reserves. In the last cycle, up until 2012, 2013, we used a $950 per ounce assumption for the determination of reserves, proven and probable reserves. When gold, as you might remember, got close to $2,000 per ounce, we adamantly and defiantly said, we're not going to take the three-year average that is normally taken, three-year historical average uh, that is normally taken for the determination of gold price, the gold price assumption. We stayed steadfast at 950 and we only moved to 1250 once the gold price had corrected in 2013, 2014. And it demonstrated that there was a, a floor in that range of 1200 to 1250. And that's when we, when we moved to that 1250. And interestingly then, in the last roughly four or five years, we've not changed that gold price assumption. And what I meant by counterintuitive is that one assumes that if gold price is going higher, we can change the assumption for the determination of reserves. And we take the opposite view. When gold price is going higher, we're going to stay steadfast with a lower gold price assumption because that has a, a better effect at compressing our costs. Let's look at costs for a moment. We've guided between $980 per ounce to $1,020 per ounce this year. Our first quarter was a little bit higher than that, but well within our budget. First quarter is much weaker than the, pre, the following quarters. That has been historically true for 14, 15 years. It's part of the mind sequencing that occurs in our company. And we've guided that 53% of the production occurs in the second half of the year, comparison to 47% in the first half of the year. So well within our tolerances, bang on or slightly better than our budget on costs. I expect our costs to be in that range of $1,000 per ounce, that average of 980 to $1,020 per ounce. But what is, what's important in that is we include everything into that. We comply with the World Gold Council model on all in sustaining costs. It's not just cash costs. We include sustaining capital into that, roughly $180 per ounce of sustaining capital. We include our general and administrative expenses. We include our exploration budget uh, into that. So it's a fully loaded cost. The only items that are missing then would be expansionary capital and taxes. But if we look at the addition of expansionary capital and taxes to all, all in sustaining costs, we come to a number that is roughly $1,300 per ounce. Now let's look at it then from a different lens. Let's assume gold price declines, falls to $1,300, $1,400, somewhere in the range of the average before this movement, this positive movement in gold price. 
We expect then that taxes will be less. We expect that our expansionary capital would be slightly less. And we also expect that the, that the normal inflationary pressures that one sees in a rising metal price environment would decrease. And so we'll still make money, in other words, because we'll be able to take that roughly $1,300 per ounce fully loaded cost and bring it down to something to something less. But I don't think that's the end of the, the, the discussion. We also have to look at the obligations of the company and the cash balances of the company so that it can ride itself through the challenges of lower metal price environments. We ended the first quarter of this year with more than $600 million on our balance sheet, 620 million some odd dollars on our balance sheet. That brilliantly positions us for all of the activities and efforts that we have, we have going forward. So with that cash on our balance sheet, the cash flows that we generate, the margins that we generate at these gold prices, we're very confident that we'll be able to meet all of the obligations of the company going forward. And finally, to answer your question on what do we do with that cash, because those cash balances will continue to build uh, because of these metal prices, we have three capital allocation priorities. We equal weight them. We do not give priority of one over the other. One is balance sheet and making sure that it always remains resilient. The other is growth, making sure that we can fund our growth, or growth organically without having to borrow. And the third is dividends. Let me begin with the third of the three first. We, we increased our dividend up until the end of last year in the 18 month preceding the end of the year by a full 425%. We're paying roughly $100 per ounce in dividends today. So it's a manageable number. We think that there's opportunity for that to grow. But the approach that we've taken on dividends is sustainability also, a balance between how much we pay and how much we can pay in God forbid an environment where gold price is not $1,800 per ounce, but 1300 or 1350, which we use as our baseline. And so what we're saying is that that, that $100 per ounce of dividend or 10 and a half cents per share is something that we think is a baseline. We've said, this is our floor and we can pay above that as cash balances increase and we demonstrate uh, more um, uh, cash flows, but we will not pay below that even if gold price were to, uh, to correct and, and go lower. Balance sheet. Uh, we have roughly $550 million of net debt. And we've taken the position from a policy point of view that the ratio normally that looks at leverage is net debt to EBITDA. We want our net debt to our EBITDA never to be higher than one, but with a very important qualification, not at $1,800 gold, but at 13 to 13.50 gold. So in other words, bottom of cycle, gold price, What's our EBITDA expected to be? We estimate about 500 million to 550 million. Our EBITDA this year will likely run above a billion dollars given where the gold price is. But at 500 million dollars, our net debt to EBITDA should not be higher than one. And as I mentioned, our net debt is roughly at that level now. And we're about two years ahead of schedule to getting to that policy uh, objective. And on the growth side, and this is an important part to, to recognize as well, my view is that fundamental errors that are made in our industry is when companies look to explosive growth rather than staged and well-managed growth. And part of well-managed growth is ensuring that you're not, what's the expression that's used? You're not breaking the, the bank uh, in, in uh, those uh, capital expenditures. 
So if we look at the company, we have about $140 million of capital expenditure this year. It will average for the next roughly three years at about 100 to $125 million of expansionary capital per year. So in the context of everything else that we've got in our business, that's very manageable. Those three capital allocation priorities are imperative. I mean, I want to make sure that it's clear. We will not pro- prioritize one at the expense of the other. And why we can say that is because given our balance sheet and given our cash flows, we can afford to say that we can manage all three without having to wait one at the expense of the other. Right. So just be clear with me. So in, t- in terms of the expansion capital, um, organic versus M&A, can we expect to see more M&A or more organic? Or how are you treating that? I go back to what I'd said earlier, Matt, which is opportunistic on M&A. It would be foolish to say we're not going to look at things. That's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to, 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 to pretend that companies don't look at things. But the way that I'm looking at the company today is that we have organic growth in the company that is well balanced, well managed over the course of the next decade. We have at least a 20% growth in production. And that will translate to more than 20% growth in cash flows because that growth will come with lower cost than our average. And so it will expand, in other words, our margins. Looking at the M&A side, we have to look at several things that I mentioned earlier and one more, which is, does it deliver a return on investment? I do not subscribe the view that just because we use our stock, then we look at only accretion or dilution to our share price. So are we trading at a better multiple than a company or an asset that we're buying? And if we are, we should be buying it. Because that doesn't take into account an important thing, which is that even if we're paying in stock, we're paying a purchase price. And if we're paying a purchase price, we must demonstrate that we can deliver a return on our investment. So if our cost of capital is at a certain point, we want to deliver a return on investment that is a multiple of our cost of capital. And the challenge I see is why we should be, and why I come back to opportunistic, is that while we should be looking at things, there are very, very few things out there that meet those hurdles of being able to deliver those types of returns. They might be good investments, but when you buy something, you buy it for life, not just as an investment period of time. And you have to demonstrate those returns. And there are very, very few things out there that demonstrate those returns. Wasamac. You sometimes buy yeah, them for, um, for, for life, but sometimes, like your balance sheet needs cleaning up, the portfolio does too. Is that, are you going to be offloading anything in the portfolio? Well, part of buying for life is what, what is the life? And we use the term generational assets before. We like to, to, to purchase something that we can, we have line of sight, even if not immediately, but we have line of sight that we can get several decades of production coming from that operation as a result of drill bit, as a result of exploration success. Uh, so um, I think that, that it's important to look at it from that lens. And when looked at from that lens, I, I take this position on dispositions as to go to your question. Nothing should ever be for sale, but everything should be for sale. And it's all about what is the optimal value for investors. What's the optimal case for the best value that we can deliver to investors? We sold an asset in 2019. It was a long life asset, but it was going through a period where its production was declining and it required significant capital to maintain that production. And our conclusion was 
that we can optimize the value to our investors by selling it today rather than by continuing to manage through this briar patch period of the next several years, roughly three to four years, as it goes through a production decline that requires significant capital to be spent in order for that uh, mine to deliver the same type of cash flows as it has historically been delivering. So the answer to your question is yes, we should be looking at monetizations. But today in our portfolio, we're, we're looking at it and saying, these are high quality assets to have. And so it's very difficult for us to be looking at things and saying that we should be selling it rather than continuing to manage What it. about in the Americas? You, you, you're in the Americas, North and South. In the South, I think in the last 12 months or so, we've seen various elections happening. We, you know, we've looked in Mexico, we've got Peru, Ecuador, um, uh, and, and Chile, right? So you're in Argentina and Chile. Do those environments, because if I look at headlines, if I read stories, there's an, the investors, some investors, I should say, are nervous about what they see there. They, they, there's the, uh, the, the eternal story of the socialist government will uh, make life difficult for miners in South America, irrespective of which country or, 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 or indeed, you know, what, what the personalities of, the, of those countries are. Does that make you nervous? Does that make your institutional shareholders nervous? Is that a cause for considering selling some of your South, South American assets? I, I would argue not. And, and I, I would encourage investors, when we have these conversations, I think it's important to put things in context. Uh, as Canadians, we've gone through a period where, certainly my opinion is that the rollout of vaccinations for COVID-19 has not been as successful as it should have been. And so we can argue that that is a fault of government and we can point the finger and say government didn't do its job. As Canadians, we can also look south of the border. I'm sure you see the headlines of some of the political challenges in, in the United States. It, this is a rough way of saying that there are political challenges in almost any country. And sometimes what seems to happen is because we're familiar with a certain country as compared to another, that we have a tendency of focusing on the headline of the country that we're not familiar with without really drilling down into the detail, coming closer to ground on, on the detail. And I think it's important to come closer to ground. Argentina is going through a period where it has an economic imbalance and needs to fix its debt problem. It's in, in progress on fixing that debt problem, but it's also a very interesting time from a mining point of view, because, well, let's say since at least 2006, our company has been in Argentina since then. For the first time since 2006, we're hearing a national government that is actively, strongly encouraging and promoting mining enterprises, the investment of, of dollars into mining in the country, and encouraging all of the provinces to follow suit. Mining is managed nationally, but more importantly, provincially in Argentina. And so it's important to recognize which province of Argentina one is in. Some are more uh, receptive to mining and have a longer pedigree uh, in, 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 uh, with uh, mining companies. And so they've established those codes of conduct, the rules-based environment that uh, promotes mining, but also makes sure that we're held feet to the fire on we're complying with health and safety requirements, environmental requirements, uh, et cetera. So Argentina is promoting mining and we're happy to be in the country. I recognize the sort of the international view of the country. I recognize its socioeconomic issues. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that from a mining company point of view, we're not manufacturing cars, we're not manufacturing pens and furniture. 
we're producing precious metals and other metals. And so from a mining company point of view, it's a very interesting time to be investing in the country of Argentina. And that's the, what I think is a persuasive argument that I want to make to investors and others. And Chile, Chile is going through a constitutional issue. They're looking to adapt a new constitution and they're going through a process relating to that. But as with all things, I think that there are checks and balances. I think that there are pros and cons to things. And I'm not discouraged by the process that they're going through. Uh, there is a further issue, which is that there is proposed legislation that increases the royalties. It appears as if it applies only to copper. We do not produce copper in the country. We produce gold and silver uh, in the country. And so it looks as if it would not apply to us. But this is a legislative process, Matt. It has gone through one house of their Congress, uh, their legislative assembly. Uh, there is another to go through. There is a presidency that then has to approve it. And there are constitutional courts that have to deal with the constitutionality of the, this proposed legislation. So the headline is, lower house passes legislation that increases royalty significantly on copper. But I think we need to drill down closer. And as we drill down closer, we'll come to the conclusion that that's a long way off and it is highly improbable that it will pass the way that it is. No, I, I, I understand that. And, and the reason I ask is because people who look from outside of a different optic from people doing business there, that's not to say there aren't issues. Now, for instance, we're speaking with a Chilean ambassador here in the UK, a leftist politician was speaking to one of the right-wing candidates, a financial lawyer from Chile, financial uh, natural resources lawyer from Chile uh, and, and journalist too. It, we're trying to understand it from the ground up. As to what it can mean. Will, you know, it's constitutional, yes. Will will the taxes go up for money? Yeah, probably, but not to not with the headlines that are being sort of bandied around and always are around mm -hmm. the time of elections. But I just wondered your view, your take on it is well, it seems to be it will be business as usual. Will the terms be modified? Probably. Um do we do are we nervous or are shareholders nervous? No. That's what I'm hearing. That's exactly right. Copper um represents about 30% of the, the economy of the GDP of the country. If we take a look at mining generally, about 40% of the GDP, maybe a bit higher than 40% of the country. It, it, is a, it, it defies logic that the general population, which is center-right, center-left, overwhelmingly, it defies logic that that population would be supportive of anything that, uh, that chokes the goose that lays the golden and the copper eggs. It's just very uh, unlikely. And if I may compare it to something that I mentioned to you before our interview began, that my wife is English. If I can compare it to something that I'm familiar with as a result of, at least by proxy, as a result of, of my family connection. When, when Britain was going through Brexit, there was talk of doom and gloom. There was talk of one thing happening versus another thing happening. And yet it's business as usual. Business continued. And that's the way that I would encourage everyone to look at any jurisdiction, particularly jurisdictions where there are democratic principles, where it's rules-based, and where there is tolerance and support for mining. That's the difference. It's got to be rules-based, it's got to be mining law, and there's got to be the ability that's to right. perfect security. All of those wonderful things uh, which lend comfort. But we're going in voice discovery with regards to South America, Chile, Argentina, Peru, like we're trying to learn what's happening on the street. But I wanted to just check in with you and sort of see where you sat on that. And I think that, I think that's clear. Can we, can we go back to, if you don't mind, because if you just finish off on this, um, and it's not, not, not to, um, 
not to uh, be unfair in terms of the amount of time we allocated to it, but you said the, the way the bifurcation of the roles between chairman and CEO, CEO looking at operational component and delivering those headlines, so those headline numbers that you guys have set yourselves up. With regards to this new language and narrative that's in the marketplace, you know, being driven by large institutional funds, being driven by the, the desire in a kind of, in a slightly greener world or a desire for a greener world, this EV thematic, that companies, especially, especially mining companies, need to behave and talk a different language. They need to be not just seen to do it, but they've actually got to do it. You, because you know, there's a lot of protests when you when we're um, you know at various conferences around the world, people are, you know complaining about the way that miners have always done this. We have always done it this way. We will always con- we will continue to do it this way. Se- seemed to be the mentality a few years ago. Three years ago, you made a, ch- a decision to make a change. So what are the things that you're focusing on because it's good for business, bottom line, and what are the things you're focusing on because the market wants to hear you say those things? Yeah, so it's a, a really good question. And my answer hopefully does not come across as controversial, but I think that a company must be doing the things that it considers to be in the best interest of all stakeholders And that should include investors, but investors should also be sensitive to the fact that there are many other stakeholders, local communities, workforces. Um, We are in, you know, we are we are guests of the host countries and the host communities in which we operate, and so must be sensitive to the fact that there are these other influences and things that we need to be looking out for. What we have to do is we have to ensure that we're properly communicating that to the investing public. Of late, and certainly on the environmental side, but the broader ESG uh, issues, investors have come to realize that it's something that is important for them to focus on. Perhaps if I can describe it this way, we've been having this event for a long time. Imagine a party and everyone has been at this party. Investors have recently joined the party. Now they bring something to the party, They're bringing good stuff to the party. One can't deny that. But that party has been going on for some time. We have as a company, but more than as a company, as an industry, been sensitive to health, safety, environment, and community issues. We've been ensuring that we are are competent and capable in dealing with these things, that we properly communicate with local communities, that we deal with the local environment. What investors are bringing to this, which I think is is very admirable and and proper and will help refine the thinking, is two things that are important. One is standardization of reporting so that we can all sort of report based on the same language. And the second is the broader global impact of environment. As a company, as a company in this industry, we've been very sensitive to local environment and ad hoc, we've been looking at the broader global environment. And in particular, I'm referring to greenhouse gas emissions. And what investors have brought to this is a recognition that we need to be looking more globally. What is the impact that we have as a company on the broader globe, not just locally, but the broader globe. But in my view, Matt, if a company is sensitive to the local environment, it begins locally. Because if we're taking care of the local environment, we're very competent and capable and willing to take care of the broader global environment. That's the way that I would describe what's happened with investors over the course of the last, let's say, one year to three years. Okay. 
I, I, I'd, I'd be keen that maybe on another occasion I sort of dig, dig down into that because I, I think it's very important. Well, it's very important to us. We, 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 it's a subject that we, we, we like and we spend a lot of time digging around and trying to understand how different companies come at it, what's real, what's not, what, what's superficial, what's tightly ingrained throughout the organization. Uh, so no, I'd, I'd appreciate um, maybe coming back and talking about what, you, what you're doing there. What are the other initiatives which are important to you? you? You've kind of, you said, right, I'm going to be long-term. I'm going to be the visionary, but I'm going to deliver that vision in terms of the long-term goals of, of the company. So I let you, 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 you've got to deliver on the day-to-day and the quarter-by-quarter. But for you, what was, the, what was the most important component of you, that allows you to actually deliver that future value down the line? Well, we touched on, on much of that. Um, what is outside the company that might be better than what's inside the company? Working with our corporate development team on looking at opportunities that, that may be in marketplace. My, with an ear to the ground, what am I hearing that might be interesting that we should be looking at uh, uh, conducting diligence at least based on public information and possibly pursuing, um, looking at how we create uh, strategies for the improvement of our day-to-day that looks to the longer term. An excellent example of that, Matt, is uh, the calculation of proven and probable reserves uh, and resources. But we are now apply an optimizer, um, a mine uh, optimizer, and we apply a, um, a um, financial model even to resources when normally one doesn't do that with resources. And the idea being that what we're trying to do is we're trying to create uh, the, the financial resilience of the company based on from the ground up, looking at what is our resource model and building from, from the ground up. Uh, I, I see the importance also of ensuring that we have sustainability, not only in terms of community relations and local environment, as I mentioned, but also the broader and the broader environment. So part of the effort that we've recently under, undertaken is how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions? But then related to that is how do we have a comprehensive uh, uh, um, climate action strategy? And we've now adopted that. It complies with the Paris Accords. It's a science-based approach. We're saying we're building from the ground up for new assets like our Wazamak mine. Uh, we will build that mine with minimal emissions of greenhouse gas or certainly reducing emissions of greenhouse gas. And looking at our existing operations, how do we retrofit those so that we can get to that point? And we've, we've established a two degree Celsius um, uh, goal initially with an aspirational goal of getting to 1.5 degrees uh, by, and, and getting to, zero, to, to, to net zero emissions by, by 2050. But the best way to say it is it's, it's great to be aspirational. It's great to say that we're going to get there by 2050. But if I can put a fine point to it, there are very few mining companies, at least precious metals finding mining companies, that have proven improbable reserves that carry three decades. And so if I looked at it from a cynical point of view, I would say, well, it's easy to say that we will be net zero by 2050 or that a company will be net zero because it won't exist by 2050 it's proven improbable reserves will have been exhausted. So it's great to say it, but I think the important thing is to do it. And part of doing it is to make sure that we develop science-based objectives. And that's critical. And that's what we're doing this year as part of that effort, building those objectives. By the end of the year, we intend to say, these are the objectives, shorter term, longer term, a year, three years, five years, and 10 and 15 years. And this is how we get to these goals. Internally, we're aware that we will get there, but we're building it out 
scientifically so that we can report that to market. And that I think should be, should resonate with our investors. So to, to come back to point, the approach that, that we're taking is um, strategic and longer term, while a big portion of this company continues to focus on the shorter term objectives of production and costs as well. So do you look at that as a point of difference that your shareholders should be excited about? Or do you look at that as something that just should be mandatory? You should do that. That should be complicit in the way that you do business. In which case, shouldn't you share some of that thinking and knowledge with other companies who should adopt the targets you set, should adopt the behaviors that you're, you're setting out? I mean, how is the industry striving together collectively to be better at what they do? Because when I speak to companies, everyone's got their own individual targets and they're seeing it as a USP rather than something that they could all do to better the environment, better you know, the standards around the world. Is, is that something that you could do, you're looking at, or is you're all looking after your own business? Well, as an industry, the, the overwhelming majority of, of precious metals mining companies are members of the World Gold Council. I sit on the board of the World Gold Council, as do many of my peers. And at a World Gold Council level, we've adopted the responsible mining principles. And all companies then have determined, they've indicated their adherence to those principles and with a time frame within which to, to adhere to those principles. So some companies already adhere to most, some have, will take some time to, to get to that adherence point. So I think as an industry, certainly through the World Gold Council, we've demonstrated that we can take these responsible actions, not in, as individual companies, but as an industry and allowing each company then to say, this is the length of time it will take to adapt my business uh, to these principles. But I think it, it's also important for us as an individual company to do these things ourselves. Not all things are done in the collective. Some things should be done in, in the case of each, each company. And the natural uh, order of things is that, or at least the appearance of the natural order, is that the larger companies will do something and the smaller companies will likely follow suit. And we'd like to punch above our weight class. We're um, a smaller company than many of these larger companies with a million ounce production platform. We are one fifth to smaller than one fifth of some of the larger companies. But on some of these things, it doesn't require being bigger to be better. And so we're certainly happy to be uh, espousing some of these principles and demonstrating how we can do it. And then using that then as a role model for other uh, companies, either our size, larger or smaller than us. With the gold price coming off, as it, I know it's had to pop back up again recently, but the gold price coming off as it did, did you expect the the effect on your share price to be so extreme? Or was there was there something else at play? Yeah, it, again, another really good question. And, and, and it goes to something that is an important message that I would like to communicate, which is that we are in a strong gold price environment. And my personal view is that gold prices will continue to go up. We can certainly have a good discussion about why I believe that, but I certainly think that directionally, gold prices will stay at these levels, remain strong, continue to allow companies such as ours to generate strong margins and free cash flow coming from that. And likely gold price will go higher as well. And in that context then, the case that I make is that it is better to be invested 
in the precious metals companies than it is to be invested in the precious metal. We have better leveraged gold prices and we're trading as an industry and we as a company in that industry at a discount to what has historically been true. And, and I believe that there's always a reversion to a mean that cycles are forever. And so it is only a matter of time before the gold equities, the precious metals companies overperform the metal. And of late, we have not been overperforming the metal. The metal, metal has done better than the equities. But over the course of time, given the undervaluation of the precious metals equities, it seems to be natural to say, invest in the equities, there's significant upside. We're trading at a discount to our net asset value. We're trading at roughly five times our cash flows. It seems to me logical that when the average is closer to eight to 12 times as a range, so let's call it 10 times as a, as a midpoint, it seems logical that one should be looking at investing in the equities rather than only the precious metals. And one further point, if I may, which is that I understand those who say, well, I'd rather invest in, in the metal because then I don't suffer the operational risk. And I understand that, except that as a precious metals company, we're doing something that differentiates ourselves. And I think the industry has done uh, the same, which is that we pay a dividend. And that dividend is not only a return to investors in cash, but it's also a compensatory amount for taking some operational risk. Admittedly, there's an operational risk in investing in a precious metals company versus precious metal, but we're compensating for that operational risk. And we're also managing that risk effectively in our particular company. And so one should be looking at the opportunity rather than the risk. And if we look at the risk reward, it is in favor of the reward. It's in favor of the upside in share price. Peter, I think I've taken up enough of your Victoria day today. Appreciate you coming on. Um, great little romp through sort of on a high level, but what's going on there, uh, hopes for the future and what you're doing on the ground as well. Um, do come on again. I'd love to dive into your thoughts on gold price, definitely. Um, and maybe perhaps what's going on with some of, some of the assets too. So um, appreciate it. We'll see you soon. I look forward to coming back. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.